Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the 200th episode of the Brighton Rock Podcast. Peter, 200 episodes. I can't believe how much rabbiting on we've been doing. Happy <laughs> birthday, Russ. You know, it's been a... <laughs> yes, yeah, sort of, yeah. It's been a the coast, mainly, mainly Yes, thank you very much. Thank you very much. So the voice with us, who you may recognise already, um, if you don't, where have you been? Because this man is a genuine, and it's a very overused expression, but it really is appropriate here, a genuine club legend. Um, He's pretty much our our most special guest thereabouts that we've had, um, because um, he's the man who's largely responsible for leading the saving of the Albion. Um, Our former chairman and owner, um, still an ardent fan who I spotted in the background at Spurs away at the weekend as well, and who came to us for Seagulls over London just last week um, for a, um, a as a guest for a meeting there as well. It is Mr. Dick Knight. Welcome to the show, Dick. Good evening, everyone. Russ and Peter, uh, thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. Well, it's a very great pleasure to have you yeah, join us. Um, definitely our overdue, pleasure. actually. <laughs> definitely our pleasure and definitely overdue. Um, you know, we've um, been delighted to get you on and there's so much to talk about, really. I know many people might have heard some of the stories before. We'll see if we can come up with some originals. Um, feel free to, to give us any exclusives you want at any point, Dick, uh, during the course of this. <laughs> um, as we speak, this may end up as two episodes, so you will probably know that by now if you're listening, um, whether it's one or two. Um, because, as I said, there's lots to talk about and um, we'd really like to get our teeth into it. So, I mean, really, I was saying just off air before, Dick, that um, one thing I have noticed is I haven't really sort of heard much about your background as an Albion fan. I know you've always been an Albion fan, but um, could you start by maybe telling us where it all started for you? You know, as, as a young lad in schoolboy shorts, strutting along, you know, um, collecting his cigarette cards or whatever it was. Is it Was it that kind of a story or how did it all start? No, I was collecting my cigarettes, I think. I was... <laughs> <laughs> must have been about at least eight, um, I guess. No, no, in fact, I never started smoking till I was in my 20s, believe it or not. No, so before that, um, well, you know, I grew up in Port Slade. My dad was in the Air Force, uh, and he was a pilot, um, so he was away a lot, and we never knew whether he was going to come back or not. Uh, my mum was incredibly strong. I had a sister, Carol, uh, uh, and I went to Port Slade School, Port Slade St. Nicholas School. Uh, and I was one of the few people alive today who saw General Montgomery give a speech on Port Slade wreck to literally thousands of troops who were about to, Canadian mainly troops, uh, who were about to go on D-Day, you know, across the channel. They were all uh, parked in Port Slade, in Hove, 
you know, in the streets, all these tanks outside my house, there were tanks, you know, Canadian tanks. We got very friendly, you know, they used to serve us really good food. Um, and all that time when I was, I was probably five or six at that time, I, I was born in 38. So by 44, I was six. Uh, and, um, I, I really, I knew my dad loved football and he was a good footballer. But I never had a chance to see it, of course, uh, because the wartime football had long since been stopped. Um, and um, anyway, he survived the war and came back, but he came back not until 1946 because he'd been in the Far East as well. Um, and years and years later, he told me that one of the things that kept him going was to one day take his son, you know, his little son, to the Albion. Uh, you know, he only he never said that to me at the time. It was years and years later. Uh, I mean, when he came back, he never said that. He came back uh, and seemingly not long after he came back, he was taking me to the Goldstone ground. And okay. uh, I'll, I think we were playing Mansfield. We were in Division Three South. We were near the bottom of the league. Uh, not a very good team, but it didn't matter to me because I never, I'll never forget the feeling as I went from the East Terrace through the turnstile with my dad, who probably played threepence for me or something, and he probably paid a, a shilling. Um, and I went up the crest at the back of the East Terrace and then got to the top of that hill and looked down on this incredible sight of this sward of green grass and all these guys running about, you know, and it was, the, the crowd was, you know, it was ten about 10,000 people there. Um, I mean, the team was that well supported, even if we were, you know, bottom or near the bottom of Division 3 South. Um, I just stood there in wonderment and I couldn't, you know, it was just so, the atmosphere was, was electric for me. I was just spellbound by it, you know, and, uh, soon got to know, you know, I mean, the game, I can't remember what the result of the game was. Uh, I think we won it actually, but the point is it was all, it was the impact of the ground itself that really hit me. The quality of the football came later in terms of me understanding the game. Um, but it was this impact. And uh, and I, I began to realise that our team, you know, started look, checking up on the results. Of course, in those days, Saturday, uh, the papers had a special football editions in the evening. Incredible. The Argus had its own, you know, eat. Saturday evening Argus uh, with results of all the games, you know, uh, write-ups. Incredible. That's what they used to do. And it became a ritual, you know, to go and get the sports Argus or whatever it was called. I don't think it was actually a pink, but a lot of the, all over the country, you know, these papers were produced. And even for a third division team, you know, that was still the, the norm. <clears throat> and so, um, you know, you began to get a feel just how big this game was in terms of, I mean, I really, at that type of stage, I was eight when my dad came back from the war. So I was actually quite old before I ever went to see an Albion game. You know, when I had my own son and grandchildren, I made sure they got to the Albion before they were eight, I can assure you. <laughs> Yeah, we can all anyone who went to the Wifty can remember your grandkids on the uh, on the pitch and uh, yeah, they used yeah. to run on the pitch after the game and use the pitch, you know, for target practice. But occasionally they were the mascot, but they weren't mascot very often. Um, but you know, they were always in the game before the game sometimes, and kind of yeah, must have been an experience for them. Obviously, we all of the rest of us just get to go in a normal stand, but to go with the the chairman at the time must have been exciting for them. Well, the first story, Peter, was lovely. When I took my grandson, uh, my eldest grandson, who was about, at the time, 18 months old, right, uh, was when we first came back to, to Whitby. 
And, you know, the first game at the Whitney, if you remember, was ironically against Mansfield. That, for me, was something in the stars. You know, I never arranged that. Um, but uh, it was just somehow the, the stars were setting right as far as I was concerned. It was against Mansfield. Uh, and it was a beautiful day, if you remember, in August. And Max, my grandson, was sitting on my lap. And um, the crowd, he was, you know, he was uh, fine until we scored the first goal. Uh, you know, and uh, everyone started cheering and he started crying because the noise, you know, was too deafening. <laughs> and, um, you know, happened. Uh, that was in, probably in the first 10 minutes of the game. A few minutes later, we scored again. Uh, and who was it who got the hat-trick? Darren Freeman got yeah, a hat-trick yeah. that day. And by the time, you know, Max, when he, he began, started crying at the beginning of every goal because of the noise around him, by the time about the fourth goal went in, he got used to it. You know, by the time Darren completed his hat-trick, you know, on I think it was Adrian's, I um, can't remember his second name, number 10, who scored two at the end. When Adrian completed his hat trick, or when we scored the fifth, Max, instead of crying and you know bawling his head off, he was going, you know, he had his arms up in the air. <laughs> and that was that was his indoctrination for the album. In one game, we scored six goals, and he went from being, you know, a frightened onlooker to a, a true blooded Albion fan cheering the goals as they rained into the Mansfield net. <laughs> Well, following the the Albion supposed to be a roller coaster over time, not in one match. But uh, he seems to have oh, done well, it. He certainly had that, didn't he? And uh, <laughs> I don't know. There's often been matches as well where it's been a roller coaster. To be honest. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's now in Philadelphia, um, working for the Philadelphia Union. So mm. he's still in football. You know, he's in football in, in a, a really interesting way. But that's you know, we'll talk about that at some other time, perhaps. Um, it's funny because what you were saying about your first, what your first game and the experiences, it, it exactly tallies with my experience as well. And everyone, we when we talk to people on the show about their first game, it's, you know, it's not necessarily the football that they remember, but the noise and the atmosphere and the, the grass and the, you know, the kind of smells. And it's, and it pretty much, yeah, just pulls you in. There's no way from the moment you get there. It's, in my first game was actually away to Watford rather than at home. But it's still the minute I think I went there, I was sold on. I was never going to support anyone but Albion. It was always going to be only one team. Well, by the time I got to the grammar school when I was 11, I, you know, had long since left my dad on the East Terrace and gone in the North Stand, you know, because that's that's where, you know, most of the young fans were, right behind the North Goal. And, and one of the things that I remember about the North Stand was this wonderful aroma in there, which I never knew what it was. I just thought it was the North Stand smell you know, of all these bodies stuck together. <laughs> but in fact, it was t- the smell of tobacco, you know, which hung in the roof of the North Stand. And a lot of it was cigar, you know, people smoked um, cigars as, as a lot more in those days than they do now. So there was this wonderful aroma, rich aroma that went with football on Saturday afternoons. I mean, those days there were very few evening matches because there were no floodlights, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, by that time, I began to identify the good players and the not-so-good players, you know, and you begin to have favourites. And, uh, of course, my... I have to, you know, be honest, my... my uh, one of my earliest favourites and still my favourite Albion player, you know, because he was just out of his depth at this level, he was far too good for Division Three. Um, was Johnny McNichol? He was a wonderful, wonderful inside forward who, in these days, would be you know a attacking midfield player. Uh, he was mesmerising on the ball. He 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 could nutmeg players. He could go either way. You know, the right winger who played with him, who was a Welsh international called Billy Reid you know, scored 20-odd goals most, you know, two or three seasons because 
Johnny laid it on for him and he himself scored a lot of goals. You know, I remember one game that I remember very clearly because it was so special was, um, um, I said, there's no, there were no floodlights then. And I was at the grammar school, Hope Grammar School, and I, and they, the Albion were playing on a Wednesday afternoon, you know, but like four o'clock kickoff or something, or maybe even 3.30 kickoff. And it was pouring with rain. And I managed to sneak off from school by saying I wasn't feeling well, you know. And I got down to the Goldstone, which wasn't far from the school. And, you know, with I, I had just had my school blazer and a cap. I didn't have a raincoat or anything. Um, and I went in into the North Stand and it was it, the ground was a quagmire, you know, and it just poured and poured. And we won this game 9-2, right? <laughs> Johnny scored four and made the other five. Wow. <laughs> it was just absolutely brilliant. I mean, if there's anyone alive still who saw that game as I did, maybe there's some old timers around, you know, who did see that game or whether they took time off from school because they would have all been schoolboys or schoolgirls, uh, as I was. Um, but I always remember, you know, when the next day when I came into school, uh, looking even then still rather bedraggled because my, you know, was, I went into school wearing hardly any school uniform because it was all soaking wet. So, you know, the head, not the headmaster, but my, my form master, you know, said, Oh, you've recovered, Knight, have you? You know, you thought, I thought you were not well, but you seem to have, you've all of a sudden now got a cold. And it was like in reverse. I got the cold after I took the time off. <laughs> but at least it was worth it for a 9 2 win. He, he sussed me out. You know, he, he knew I was, you know, big football fan, big Brighton fan. You know, he knew that. I think he was a bit of an Albion fan himself, to be honest. But, uh, you know, there was there weren't many like me who would actually play truant from school, uh, which is in, in effect what I did. But there were so rarely did they play in the midweek. I mean, it was virtual Saturday afternoon, three o'clock. You know, not, not those, on Saturday were 8 those were the days. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you that actually. Was there many people doing that, playing truant for those games? Because you had that paradox of not being able to do, do the games later in the evening. And I was wondering how tempting that might be for. I mean, was there yeah. anyone else at your school that did it? No, I mean, I I was at the grammar school. Remember, so you know, mm. not the darn thing. <laughs> we were supposed to be. We were supposed to be the toffs of the town. <laughs> there were a few of them like me, but on that particular game. I remember when I got into the North Stand, there were quite a few kids of my age, but I didn't recognise anyone from my school. Uh, but, you know, there were so people, you didn't need to play truant very often because, you know, the only time it clashed is if you were playing the school team um, and you were playing away somewhere in Sussex and you didn't get back in time for the, because those matches were normally morning matches, weren't they? you know, school school matches. Um, and I would always uh, be anxious to get back into into Brighton uh, so I could go to the Albion. Um, yeah, but it was, I mean, there were all these uh, images that I have in my mind. Another one was, of course, the guy going round at half-time with the scores, putting up the scores <laughs> that they painted on these letters that were in the programme. So letter A in the programme was, you know, Arsenal versus um, Birmingham City or someone who's in the Premier in Division 1 at that time. And so A, and then they put up 2-1, so you had the half-time scores. Because in those days, um, the football pools were very popular, and I think they had um, half-time results were part of the, you know, the, the gambling side of it. So this guy used to, you know, at the beginning of the game, he used to sell the Argus, you know, to over the hands of the, in, on the terraces to people further back who used to pass it back. And believe it or not, 
take their money and pass it down. You know, I mean, you can't ever imagine that happening today, could you? Um, and, uh, you know, so you'd get your sixpenny Argus or that day, and then at halftime, the guy, you know, was doing the scores, the halftime scores, <laughs> you know, and uh, it was all that building of that wonderful uh, feeling that was special, you know, and you always looked up to it. Uh, when Johnny came to the team, you know, the year before, I think it was the year before, we actually came bottom. Um, but in those days, so we could have, in, in today's league structure, we would have been relegated out of the league. Because there, there was only three levels in those days, you know, first, second, and Division 3 South and Division 3 North. It wasn't the fourth level. Uh, they amalgamated the South and North, you know, in the about, I think, in the sort of early 60s. Ah, uh, in theory, the team that finished bottom of Division 3 South and North election, um, but they always got voted back in. Because Christmas, um, you know, they all voted against a new club coming in because it was self-preservation. So, Brian, uh, you know, we came bottom. We were re-elected into the league. So that in that in that time in those forties and early fifties, there were very few new teams ever. Uh, Peterborough, I remember, Colchester United, but only because probably the teams that came bottom of Division 3, South or North, as well, occasionally a club, you know, got into financial trouble, not the way it is today, um, but uh, very rarely... League, Football League... Uh, which was, it was still 92 clubs. It was 92 clubs. Hmm. Divisions, North and South. And we got re-elected when we finished bottom. Hmm. Yeah. We're, we're having a couple of slight breaks in uh, audio there. Hopefully everyone can still hear that. Um, if it gets worse, we can always um, try and reboot you, uh, Dick, and get you back in, um, so to speak. But I think we caught all that. Um, interesting what you said there um, about the being uh, we've, under the, the the old system, we would have been safe. Under a new system, we wouldn't have been safe for one of those seasons there. That, of course, was true in 97. Uh, we just mentioned the Fans United season. And, um, in fact, um, two years in a row, we've just about escaped, didn't we? Under the current system, we would have gone down. So it's, it's lucky things have changed um, later and not yeah. sooner. And then, Dick, in terms of as the seasons went by... Um, you obviously you would have had other heroes uh, as you were standing there on the terrace, coming through, becoming the new big names or the those those maverick stars. Who who stood out for you? Who who became the heroes after Johnny McNichol? Well, um, I, there was a defender called Roy Jennings who was a centre half who was a very good stalwart, you know, classic old fashioned centre half. Uh, but he was extremely good. Um, and he came as a youth international from Swindon. Uh, clearly, he uh, that was when Billy Lane was the manager who was able to, because he had a, quite a good reputation as a manager, Billy, he was able to attract, you know, one or two players from other clubs uh, who were more than average. And... Um, Roy was had a particular place in my heart for two reasons. One was that he uh, played about 300 games for the Albion and scored the odd goal from a corner with his bullet headers. Uh, you know, he was one of those head guys that headed everything. And um, uh, he um, he also, when he first came to Brighton at about age 18, he actually lodged at my house. Uh, oh, right. <laughs> yeah. He lodged at my house simply because my parents knew a direct, one of the directors of the Albion. And uh, 
he'd said that they were looking because Roy was, you know, one of the youngest players they'd ever brought into the club, you know, from another area. Uh, the, the young players that came normally were all from the Brighton area. So they wanted to have a sort of mentor with him um, and in with being in with a family. And uh, so we offered to house him for a while. My parents offered to house him for a while because for me, it was brilliant um, because my sister was at university by then. So we had a spare room. And um, he also was mentored by this left back uh, who came to the club at around the same time from Sheffield United in the first division. And he was a seasoned, you know, Division One defender called Morris McLafferty. And his family still live in this area. Uh, and I've met them. Uh, Morris, you know, was a very good left back. Um, and uh, not quite with the buccaneering style of uh, Cucurella, but almost as good <laughs> in terms of his going forward. He used to love you know, buccaneering forward and um, often leaving huge gaps in defence because t- the teams weren't set up that in that way as they are today. Um, but, but Morris was a really uh, very, you know, he played over 200 games in the first division. So he was a very seasoned campaigner. And he and Morris, uh, Morris and, and Roy got on extremely well. And he, you know, wasn't only off the pitch where... Morris mentored him, but initially on the pitch. And Roy, you know, very quickly became a a very accomplished defender um, to the extent that I remember we one year we got to the fifth round of the FA Cup against Preston North End. And Roy was up against Tom Finney, who was a great England international winger and centre forward. And Tom was a will-o'-the-wisp, you know, player. But he actually, and he was a lovely man. I met Tom Finney later, you know, when I was the chairman of the Albion. He, he, he was always a Preston man. I don't think he played for any other club. In those days, players stayed at the same club. And um, he, you know, but he said to, uh, he said to um, the manager of, of Brighton after the game, you know, you've got a wonderful young player in that centre half. He said he never got anywhere near me, but then I'm quite good, he said. <laughs> <laughs> he told him, you know, that he had a, he, he was a very special player. Um, you know, and, and Roy, you know, said he was a gentleman. You know, uh, he came up to him after the game and shook him by the hand, you know, uh, Tom did, and said, you'll go far in the game, lad. You know, well played. He was a really lovely guy. Um and he was he played for England seventy or eighty times in the days where it was hard to play seventy or eighty times for England. He was that good. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was also through the years. I mean, I saw Barry Reese play uh, virtually all of the tragically small number of games he played for the Albion, uh, twelve in fact. Uh, and I saw the game the night he played the night before he was killed. He played it on a Friday night um, against, I think it was Stockport or Southport. When we we were a good team, we were um, we were actually in League Four. That, by that time, that had been formed. I think we we're in League Four or League Three. But anyway, he came to us from Everton. How on earth Everton ever let him go? Uh, and even in those days, Everton had team problems because how they let him go, he was a superb attacking wing half uh, who could pick a pass. You know, he was very uh, athletic, box-to-box, wonderful passer of the ball, a lot of dynamism, great technique. He was going to be a top, top player, you know. And uh, he played 12 games for Brighton, uh, and then he was killed in a car crash the, the following, that night when he was driving home to Wales. But, you know, I was asked a year or so ago to name my best, all-round best ever Albion team. And he was in that team because he was that good. You know, I know a player when I see one. And, you know, he the way he would thread passes to players, 
And we had some decent, like Wally Gould, we had some decent attacking players who played around that time. And, you know, so he had some good players around him. But in terms of, again, how the, how he came to the third level, he he was already played for Wales under 23. So he was, you know, he, he was on the radar of, of uh, but I guess Everton, you know, had a very good first team in those days. You know, they were around the top of the division, of division one. Um, and they, the club probably thought they, we can't see a, a a place for him, you know, upcoming. He was only 19, I think, when he was killed. But he was a, a tragic loss. Well, obviously, a tragic loss full stop, but a very tragic loss to football. Um, yeah. and the Albion, how long we would have been able to keep him is another matter. But those of us who saw him will never forget. Yeah, by all accounts, he, he could have gone all the way. From stories I've heard of him, um, in terms of, you know, uh, no, he, would, top of the he game. would have played... He would have played uh, at the top level uh, and he would have been a Welsh international. He would have played, you know, goodness, he would have been a regular for Wales for years. Injury. I mean, there was never any indication that he was injury prone or anything like that. You know, unfortunately, he was in a car crash uh, and he was killed. So it was a real tragic loss. Uh, And and, I was going to... Yeah, I was going to say. Um, so, in terms of um, your supportership, so you you you've been born in Portslade, so all of this was happening locally. You were still living locally, presumably. Um, did you? Are you always lived locally? Because I know you had a bit of time in the states. And no doubt, as you sort of got into your career, you moved no, around. No, a bit, I I, um, I lived in. You know, I had a house in Hove. I went into the advertising business in London. I used hmm. to commute. Uh, when I started out at my first agency, I was always working in London initially. Uh, and, you know, goodness knows how many thousand miles I used to travel a year on the, on the old, you know, London to Brighton. Um, but that was fun because you met a lot of people, interesting people. And I was in what I was in the famous card schools, um, <laughs> which were an education, especially <laughs> to a young guy like me. Um, you know, and uh, the ad business, well, I just took to it like a duck, duck to water because I was a writer and I was, you know, I did well quite early uh, and I made some progress up. You know, in the end, after about eight or nine years in the ad business, I decided I'd played, I'd worked in three American agencies that had London offices, one of whom uh, asked me to go work in New York. So I went to work in New York then. Uh, that was, you know, 15 years into my advertising career before I started my own company. And then I started my own company and that, my own ad agency, which, you know, did very well. Uh, and within, uh, let's say, eight or nine years of its being launched, we were being uh, approached by big American agencies to take us over. And I uh, I was the chairman of it, and I had some very good partners and colleagues. I had a lot of women in the company because, you know, who I paid the same money to as men, which in, at the time we didn't realise how far ahead of, of everyone else we were. But in my ad agency, you know, we had over 50% of the staff were women because we took a lot of graduates. And believe me, a 23-year-old female graduate is so much more mature than a 23-year-old male graduate in terms of psychology. We were in, we, we had people who were into economics, <clears throat> psychology and market research, these sort of data, you know, so, um, yeah, so we became uh, a target for big companies, you know, and I, I did a couple of deals in New York uh, where I only sold 40% of the company, so we still kept control of it. And as a result of that, uh, we grew very quickly. And um, so by the time of the early 90s, uh, I'd kept my, you know, fan 
following of the Albion. I mean, go through the players, you know, the era of Lawrenson and Ward. Um, I used to tell, I mean, by this time I had some offices in Europe and I used to tell our Frankfurt office that we had a guy playing for Brighton who was as good as Beckenbauer. And of course, it was Mark Lawrenson I was talking about. And they'd all used to scoff at me and say, oh, yeah, Dick, yeah, oh, yeah, so, yeah. He's obviously <laughs> as good as De Kaiser. Obviously, he is. And of course, he was <laughs> almost. Well, you know, let's face it, Beckenbauer was a bit of a player. But then so was Mark Lawrenson, arguably the best, the best ever Albion player, Mark, in terms of his overall achievements in the game. Um, and, a, and a very enjoyable player to watch because he would sally forward from the back. Uh, Brian Horton told me years later, who was skipper of that side, you know, Mark would sally past him with a ball, you know, driving forward, and he'd throw it aside, watch my back skip, you know. <laughs> Brian was playing in midfield, you know, and he, he like Brian couldn't go forward because Lawrenson had gone forward, <laughs> and Brian <laughs> did all the donkey work, you know, for. Uh, but there yeah, was a yeah. class player, absolute class player. Uh, and, you know, so we've had some great players, right? Yeah. And we've yeah. also had some very poor players, very average <laughs> players. Yeah. Well, I, I would say probably a lot of those poor ones may have been there when you were, it, that, that season at Gillingham possibly was the, um, in terms of get, yes, attracting players, I think it's probably the one of the ones where we, we had quite a, lot of, like, a, quite a lot of turnaround, didn't we, in terms of players that, First year at Gillingham, they must be up there with some of the maybe not so good players that we've had, should we say? Well, Peter, we were the, the that set first year at Gillingham, and if you like, you know, the first full season that I was chairman, we were worse than we were the previous year. Yeah. But because, you know, we had a team below us that was even worse than us, Doncaster. Yeah. You know, if you think, the year we saved ourselves at Hereford, we actually had 40, we got 46 points, which is quite a lot of points, you know, to be bottom of the league. But we got 46 points. They got 46. But we had a better goal difference, which, of course, was all caused by the event of 25 years ago today, yeah. Russell. Yes, and indeed. Fans United Day, where we won 5-0. Uh, that gave us that goal uh, advantage. Um, and so, you know, basically, uh, when we went to Gillingham, you know, the, some of the players didn't fancy, you know, having to travel to Gillingham. So they left. And, you know, in fact, we only, you know, we finished that season, um, with 36, uh, 34 points. 12 less than we got the season before. But the, we were never in any danger of um, winning. Sorry, of, sorry, winning, of getting relevant. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> no, we weren't, because Doncaster finished the season with 20 points. Yeah. So we were never in danger of getting relegated. You know, because as you said earlier, Russell, you know, only one team went down. Now it's two. But I always remember the Doncaster away game for a very special reason. Um, we actually, first of all, it was the only away game we won all season, right? And and it was a return journey where I, you know, um, met a very famous person on the train. Uh, I got on the train uh, at Doncaster and I was on my own and I went into, for, it was packed, the train. And there were a lot of Albion fans on it. And I sat in the first class carriage and that was packed. And I realised that sitting opposite me was none other than Joanna Lumley. Oh, right. right. Yeah. Right. Anyway, so there she was sitting. The, the carriage was full. You know, even the first class carriage was full. Anyway, I've been sitting there about 10 minutes sort of thinking, that's Joanna Lumley. <laughs> You know, how do I, I, I must start talking to her in some way. Uh, I've got to find a reason for talking to her. Anyway, 
all of a sudden, along the carriage came this rampaging group of Albion fans, right, down the carriage, right? <laughs> and they went past the first-class compartment that I was in, and they all, you know, like, all of a sudden someone shouted, there's Dick Knight, you know. So they opened the door, they all piled into this, about four of them, Dick, can we have your autograph? They were at programs, you know, the Doncaster program. They're all getting me to sign, ignoring Joanna Lumley completely. And so they, they you know, there's, can you sign this one as well? You know, it, it all, the whole thing took about five minutes at least. Anyway, they all then eventually went out. Not one of them saw it. Joanna Lumley sitting there. <laughs> so she looked at when they went out and they closed the door. And she said in her wonderful voice, Thank God that's over. You know, she said, she leant across and she said, Who on earth are you? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I said, I'm the uh, football club uh, chairman. And she said, My God. She said, You are so. I wish I was as popular as that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I remember um, Richard Lin no Richard um, Linfield, right? Uh, got a hold of that story. Someone told him or something that I was, you know, we I'd been chatting to at this point. From the rest of the journey, we were having a nice chat, and um, so Richard did a piece. You remember he used to do a column in the Argus. It was like. Albion chat, and he he did this piece saying, you know, with a lovely picture of Joanna, and under the caption said, "Not as famous as Dick Knight." It's <laughs> 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 a brilliant, brilliant caption. You know? That's brilliant. You didn't ever bump into her again, did you? After that, by any chance? Because that would have been quite funny. That's off the <laughs> record. <laughs> oh. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> What stays in first class? Now? No, no. <laughs> it, it was uh, it was funny. Who on earth are you? You know, like <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's brilliant. I mean, there, there is a thing, isn't there, for chairman going on uh, away days to the Albion and and getting accosted by fellow fans. Um, uh, and getting accosted fans. by getting accosted by a Joanna Lumley. You know, wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I bet Tony Bloom hasn't got that story to tell. No, no. <laughs> Probably not. Who knows? Who knows? Who, <laughs> Who knows? knows, yeah. But, no, I mean, that, that's, that's brilliant. And that's that's one of the great things about football, isn't it? It turns up these stories away from the actual pitch as well as what yeah. goes on on it. And um, it's it's great to hear. Um, one, one bit more about your career, just wanted to mention, because you, you've got your book out. I, I have a copy of it here. Um, ah. um which is called Mad Men, Mad, sorry, Mad Man. Um, and I think that's partly an allusion to, obviously, the, the thing about getting involved in football and partly an allusion to um, the industry you're in. Um, because, of course, yeah, yeah, the, of course, there's a famous TV series. series. Yeah. Mad, Mad Men, which was very, very good and very yeah. lifelike in terms of yeah, that's, how it that's was what I heard in the 60s said. in New York, mm. uh, which is when I was there. That's when I started being there, that I went... I was there a lot into through to the end of my advertising career. You know, one mm. year in my passport, I had 88 American immigration stamps on my passport, <laughs> 88, wow. which meant I worked out. I, I knew I was there sometimes. Well, in, a, in a, every fortnight, I was there three times in a fortnight. Some weeks uh-huh. I was there twice a week, you know, because... The main reason I was there was because I had the Pan Am account. Um, oh. You know, and, um, and it was all run out of New York uh, and uh, from the Pan Am building, you know, they had their own building. And um, so I was back there and back in a day often. They had four flights either way from uh, from London to New York. And so it was easy for me to get a plane in the, the 10 o'clock flight out and get to, you know, I could be, for an afternoon meeting, I could get the 10 o'clock flight out, arrive in New York, you know, at lunchtime, local time, get, you know, get into Manhattan, come back, have a two or three hour meeting 
and come back on either the seven o'clock or the nine o'clock flight back to England. So I'd be in my office the next morning. Um, and, you know, we had a, in my office, you know, that's when we, you know, were quite well established and we had a, a facility for showering and all that, you know, at the top of the building. And I had some change of clothes there. And so I'd be in my office, you know, very early in the morning. The only time I was ever early in the morning in my office was when I'd been in America the day before. <laughs> because, you know, you fly in, in into Heathrow early. Um, and that's why I was always there much earlier, because I'd been in the States. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was uh, a pretty hectic life. But I didn't, uh, I never, ever, throughout all of that time, never lost either the desire or the reality of supporting the Albion. I, I mean, what, one of the things I used to love doing is I'd get a flight, you know, out of, from New York on a Friday night, get into London on the Saturday morning, come home. My home, you know, my family home is across Hope Park, uh, Hope Rec area. And I just walk across the park, you know, with my son um, and go onto the Goldstone East Terrace. I never had a, you know, I never had a season ticket at the Goldstone. Oh, I just okay. used to go on the East Terrace. And um, when after I you know, became grown up, I graduated back to the East Terrace from behind the North Goal. Um, and so I spent years on that East Terrace, you know, catching up with my pals one of whom was Bob Pinnock, who was my financial director in my ad agency, but also um, was a Brighton fan uh, and lived locally in Hove. Um, and he came with me, you know, with, when, when I joined up with Liam Brady. That was the consortium, was me, Liam and Bob Pinnock. And, and Bob, you know, often we'd be catching up on the East Terrace on a Saturday afternoon while we were being get we're getting hammered by Grimsby Town or somebody, <laughs> and I was telling him what I'd been doing in New York yesterday or the day before because we, you know, we were catching up. It was a pretty okay. hectic life, but I I loved it, and uh, you know, but the Albion has always been part of my life, despite you know jetting around the world. Uh, I was in all sorts of places, but I always tried to you know, get back to see the Albion. I, I think the the least matches I ever saw in a season since I, you know, went when I was eight was probably 20. You know, that was the minimum number of games I've seen in a season, you know. So, I, you know, it probably runs to 2,000 games I've seen now with the Albion. Some, mm. I mean, someone could do the math, but, you know, it's, it's a lot of games. That is a lot of games. <laughs> in those days that you might... Like buy the club at some point or whatever, or is it like a, a kind of a complete dream at that point, and then became a reality, obviously with circumstances and stuff. And well, I never, Peter, I never ever imagined or had any desire to become the chairman of the Albion. I, I wasn't an ambition or anything, you know. Uh, mm. But when it started going seriously wrong, um, and I could see that it, I mean, Liam came to me. Um, about two years before that, when he was at the manager at the club, and he began he began to realise what they were up to. You know, he didn't like the people who, who were his employers because he didn't. You know, he thought they were pretty unscrupulous, and uh, he knew my brother. I didn't know Liam at that time. He knew my brother-in-law very well, and he said to my brother-in-law, "Do you think Dick?" Would, would be interested in getting involved. And at that time, um, you know, I met him briefly and I said, um, I'm too busy, you know, in my job. I'm, I'm sort of very involved in my job and I can't devote enough time. If I, if I did do it, I would, I would want to be the chairman of it and I would want to give enough time to it. Um, and then, of course, after that, my wife got cancer. So that changed everything, uh, and and she died two years later. Uh, but 
at that t- time, the club was in a terrible state, of course. Mm. And Liam, a few months afterwards, came back to me, you know, and said, you know, how do you feel now? You know, is it? So I said, you know, and by this time I knew that the club was in a serious trouble, um, not only financially, but its reputation in football was, you know, it was in the gutter, you know, uh, because of the way Archer and, and co had run it. Um, so one of the things that when I eventually did manage to unseat him was to, I knew I had a huge job on my hands uh, to reinstate the club's reputation within football because, you know, it's a very close shop the Football League and the FA. It's a very close shot. And I never forgot that, uh, you know, while I was wrangling with Archer over the months of trying to unseat him, where you'd have a meeting with him, uh, he'd agree something, and then the next, you know, so you, you're waiting for a development of probably what you just agreed, uh, of what you'd agreed in the meeting earlier that week. By the end of the week, nothing had happened. So he then would say, no, I never agreed to that. I've decided, or I decided I've decided, I'm not going to do that now. So it was all the time. It was a shifting sands, you know, it was, but, but in all that time, um, I sort of, I was determined not to let him beat me because, you know, we were the fan. No, of course I, I brought the fans into, I told the fans what I was trying to do and I, you know, called meetings and I, I'm, you know, maybe you guys were there. Um, but I had various meetings at the Hovetown Hall and I, by that time had Martin Perry had, was working for the Calpines and he was there to advise the club on, you know, how you might build a stadium. Um, and uh, at that time, you know, I, I, he was there really um, as an advisor working for McAlpine's because they obviously realised that the club needed a new ground. Uh, ultimately, it was going to need a new ground. But the process by which Archer went about it was so, you know, devious that, um, and he should have been, the FA and the Football League should have thrown the book at him, but they didn't. And therefore, you know, they should have thrown the book in terms of bringing the game into disrepute. But they didn't do that because of Alan Sugar, a year or so earlier, had taken the Football League, sorry, the FA, to the high court because they, if you remember, Tottenham were fined hugely for financial misdemeanours and they were thrown out of the FA Cup one year. Ah, Are you aware of that? No, I forgot. Right? Well, this would have been in 96, 95, 96. Sugar took over the club as chairman. His predecessor had been charged with some... They weren't, you know, they they were financial misdemeanors, probably spending too much on players or whatever. Anyway, he took it over. And the the FA decided to fine the club, you know, several hundred thousand pounds, I think deduct 12 points from them, because at that time they ran, they also controlled the Premier League, but also to throw them out of the FA Cup, ban them from the FA Cup. Well, basically, up to that point, football had always administered itself. It was a never a part of the criminal law of the country, right? Or the commercial law of the country. It was run by football. Alan Sugar thought, not having that, I'm going to appeal in the high court. This is, you know, restriction of of practice, restriction of trade, blah, blah, blah. And, And he won the case. So the football then, the Football Association were absolutely scared of charging any club with doing something errant or any, you know, director or chairman of a club. So this is, he benefited from that, Archer. 
because he was the recipient of their of Arch of uh, Alan Sugar's, you know, proving that the football can't manage itself enough sufficiently well. So they never wanted to go through that again. So Archer got away with it, essentially, as far as they were concerned. All they did is throw all sorts of penalties and brickbats at me for trying to take over the whoever took over the club. We had all these penalties imposed on us. Not Archer, but me and you know my colleague. It was absolutely outrageous. Hmm. And you said um, we had the, the meeting at Seagulls over London last week, and you were saying about um, a large amount of money that you had at some point along the line here, you had to commit um, into an account and have, there was a deadline, wasn't there, to get stuff sorted uh, for fear of forfeiting that money, um, yeah. which was like a bond, I guess, wasn't it? Well, this is the Football League. Um, yeah. this, this follows on from what I was just saying. Instead of charging hmm. Archer, um, they decided to charge the club you know, they with various penalties. It started out, it was going to be points deducted, which is their normal knee-jerk reaction. Uh, but then they thought, um, this club has gone beyond that. You know, we need to really hit them hard where it hurts, which is financially, right? <laughs> 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 I mean, you couldn't make it up. This guy is coming in, i.e. me, with a few colleagues, trying to save the club, you know, um, he's obviously, it's now already been proven he's got the fans backing and he's got enough money to be able to save the club, which I had, you know, and it was my money that saved the club. But what they then did, they said, right, you're going to play at Gillingham. So, you know, you don't have a ground. So what you have to do, you have to come back to Brighton and Hove within three years. And if you don't, so in order to guarantee you do that, you're not doing some devious thing, you know, with Gillingham, so you play there the rest of your history of your club, we're going we're gonna to impose a performance bond on you, which is of £500,000. We're talking about in 1997, you know, beginning of yeah, 1997. A lot more now. Hmm. Imagine, you know, and here am I trying to save the club and I've got to fork out a half a million quid to sit in the Football League bank account and if we didn't come back to Brighton within three years, they would keep that money. And meantime, right? they get the interest. <laughs> and they got the interest, which in those days was very high. Yeah, decent so, rates. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so the point is that as far as I'm concerned, you know, the Football League at that time were pretty useless. They didn't do anything to help the people who were trying to save the club. They All they did was penalise us yeah. rather than penalise the person who did it all. Which you is know, similarly when, 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 the, when the fans were protesting and doing stuff that, to actually make, you know, to get noticed, we'd lose points because to attack the, the, the club itself, not the owners again, Archer and Stanley got away with everything and you know, they deduct points from the team, even though, you know, it clearly was all down to Arch and Sam. The whole problem was them. And they yeah, didn't... They, the fans, one of the things that I said, you know, was the fans, you know, your pit, the fans are protesting, you know, against running the club. They're not hooligans. They may be behaving in a way that is beyond the pale because they are so frustrated because you failed to act. They're not hooligans, you know, but all over the papers, these pictures of Brighton fans breaking the crossbar. But I said they've been driven to that by the ineptitude of you people running the league and the FA to not get a grip of this guy. And it's going to happen in football. You know, I was so right about Berry, Mac. All these clubs are in financial trouble. They, you know, they should have acted properly control their their clubs and have a proper governance of their clubs. But they don't. You know, they allow the clubs to get away with blue murder until it's too late. They only find out about things when it's too late. You know, so in the case so anyway, what happened 
you know, they started noticing and the press started, you know, showing pictures of Brighton fans on the pitch where, where it's all about protesting about Archer and Bellotti and Stanley, though he kept in the background. You know, it was the preposterous behaviour of Bellotti uh, and the outrageous behaviour of Archer. Archer was the, was the pulling the string. Bellotti was just a puppet. You know, all the strings were pulled by Archer. And he was manoeuvring a situation where he was only interested in one thing, the property value of the Goldstone ground. That's all he was interested in. He had no interest in the future of the club. So, you know, and so what they do, you're going to lodge half a million pounds. I said, I need that money to help, you know, rebuild this club. Well, you've got to find another half a million pounds then because... You know, we're having that money. And if you don't come back to Brighton in, within three years, they're going to keep that money. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a deterrent and it sounds like opportunism to me. Um, you know, they're, they're probably thinking there's a pretty good chance he won't have another half a million. We don't know how much he's got. But if he hasn't, that might all backfire and we get to keep the money. Game on. Well, exactly. You know, yeah. I mean, he, uh, there's all sorts of possible scenarios because... Mm. The chances are, you know, we were bottom of the league, just about escaped by the skin of our teeth. You know, uh, we were going to play, you know, miles away from our hometown. Uh, they're not not all of, of a sudden going to become as good as Manchester City. You know, in other words, they, they will probably still be rubbish as a team. You know, will there ever get any supporters going to Gillingham, 75 miles away? They thought they were onto a good bet of pocketing my five hundred thousand quid. You know, it was. Yeah. I mean, it was. And, and you know, it, when we came back after two seasons, you know, to Whitby, uh, we managed to get the club back to Whitby, um, despite you know initially the council resisting it. Um, but we got through that and eventually persuaded the council that the Albion was a good thing for the town of Brighton and home, the city of Brighton and home. Um, which oh, people, forget, people forget how long, I was going to say, people forget how long it took to get to Woodden as well. I mean, because of Amex oh. being such a disastrously long, in terms of not through no fault of our own, a disastrously long campaign. I think people almost forget how annoying it was getting to Woodden as well. There was a exactly. fair bit of... Yeah. Exactly, Russell, because, you know, it was 14 years, 14 and a half years from the yeah. last game at the Goldstone when I took over to the first game at the Amex, the first competitive game, April 1997 to August 2011. So that's 14 years. I was a script writer in my career. I was a writer. I couldn't make up such fantasy because <laughs> no one would believe it, that it would take us 14 years to get to the Amex. And as you say, first of all, two years playing at Gillingham, at least a year to get back to Whitbeam because everyone was resisting it. The council were resisting it. The local people in Whitbeam were resisting it. If you remember, they were citing examples of crowds being trampled, you know, in Preston Park Station. I mean, it was just outrageous. Uh, you know, football hooligans rampaging across the gardens of with Dean. The answer is, you know, switch the reality of it because we educated everyone to, this is what we need to do. This is how we need to behave. This is how we, you know, we go about it. You know, we have stewarding in a region around with Dean, you know, we'll have bus park and ride buses coming in, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, no one is going to be rampaging in anyone's garden because not that any of you would want to do that anyway, but if you do, you'll be banned from the life from the club. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so that was the ultimate sanction. Not that anyone ever got anywhere near doing that. But I always remember Peter Drury, who wrote at that time for the Sunday Telegraph, the first game we played against Mansfield, that wonderful August 
afternoon where we won 6-0. Um, he wrote the report of that match and he said going to a Brighton match at their new home in with Dean is like attend is like people walking along the road speaking hushed terms and it's as if they're creeping past the headmaster's study <laughs> as they walk along the road to get to get to the ground. We've been conditioned, yeah. haven't we? <laughs> yeah, I mean it's just it was just brilliant. It was it was just yeah. a it, I think it was a wonderful experience what we went through really because it was unique. Yeah. No club had ever done that before. Uh, no fans had ever risen up the way we all did. Uh, you know, it was one hell of a determined group of people. And in the end, Archer knew that he was not going to win. He used to call me, you know, a chancer. And I said, well, you can call me him. right, but I'm a Brighton and Hove Albion fan and I'm going to save this club. And if you don't, if you don't want to be part of that, you know, if you, you know, you're currently the chairman and you're not going to have control of the club. Uh, if you want to be part of what I'm going to do, what we're going to do, me and the fans, then you can. Otherwise, go. We don't want you. And eventually, of course, he did go, but not initially. He, I, what I did, we, we prized his hands off control of the club, you know, um, which is the key thing. And, uh, you know, so uh, it was about 18 months after I gained control of the club that he then left. But he wouldn't, he couldn't face the ignominy of standing down when he put up such a robust, you know, defence of his position and that he was doing it for the fans, he was doing it for the club, all that nonsense, absolute nonsense. You know, he was only doing it for himself you know, and uh, Greg Stanley. <coughs> Sports Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.